Well, if you were with us last year, you'll recall that, uh, that we had done a very similar series at that time. And we had asked people from the congregation and from the community to send in some questions that were on their mind, preferably theologically-based questions and church-based questions, not just random questions about how do you make bread and things like that, because I don't have answers to those sorts of things. Uh, and so we've come back to wanting to uh, revisit that again this year, in part because there was one or two questions that I really, really wanted to get to last year that we're going to have a chance to tackle this year, but also because questions keep coming up. Now, where did this idea come from? Well, you probably know, many of you will know, that if you take out your phones and you dial 411, it gives you a service that's referred to as, as what? Information. Right, information. And so if you have a question that's related to like a phone number, an address, things like that, you can dial 411 and get information. I remember when my uh, children were a little bit younger, my daughter in particular, Kaylina, when she was about to go into junior high, and we were on our way to school to register her for classes, but we were running behind. So as I was racing down the road to get to this meeting, I said, Kaylina, take out your phone, dial 411, and ask for a phone number for the school so we can let them know that we are coming, that we're coming, we're just gonna be a few minutes late. And she looked at me and she goes, well, I couldn't do that. <laughs> well, why not? And she says, well, I'd have to talk to somebody. <laughs> I thought, now this is where I could branch off into a commentary on the impact of socialization of millennials, but I'll choose not to do that today, but instead talk about how sometimes we have questions, but we're afraid to ask the question. Even as simple as dial 411 and putting the name of a school, getting a phone number, can be a difficult thing to do. We have these questions, and at times it, it can be a humbling step to ask a question because it acknowledges that I don't have the answer. For other people, it's a difficult thing to do because we don't want people to judge us or think poorly. If I ask a question about faith, maybe people will think I don't have faith. But here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that whether you are skeptical of the Christian faith, if you are curious, if you are new to it, if you are a long time committed to it, I guarantee you that we all hold one thing in common. We all have questions. And we need to ask those questions and get information. There's some questions I can't give you answers to, such as why can it be plus 20 on Friday and then snow on Saturday? You need meteorologist 411 for that one. Why are there no more Canadian teams in the playoffs? I can't answer that either. You need NHL 411 for that one. But there are some questions related to things of God, things of the church and theology that we are looking forward to addressing for you in the next couple of weeks here. Now, this year, uh, I reached out to some friends, some colleagues, some people that can help us address some of these things. And today in particular, we have a very special guest with us, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Randall Rouser, who is the professor of historical theology at Taylor Seminary, uh, somebody that I have taken a number of courses with over the years and have very much enjoyed. Uh, he's written many books as well, which are listed up there, and uh, some that actually, I don't think you have, you have even more than are listed up there, but uh, would you please join me in welcoming Randall as he joins me on the platform here today. Here we are. Thank you. You know, as you look at the, the list of books, there's some that are more known than others, such as Finding God in the Shack, which is mm -hmm. probably the, one of the better sellers that you had. But uh, myself, I did enjoy reading, uh, I have to read it because I'll get the name wrong, The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetic Rabbit Trails. <laughs> that was a, a very enjoyable read as well, and I found that there's actually uh, somebody wrote a rebuttal to that book that I uh, came across this week. I haven't read that one yet, but... It's not worth reading. It's not worth reading. 
<laughs> so good. Well, we're certainly glad to have you with us here today. Uh, for, there are some people here who, who know you from Taylor. I, mean, I know there's some people who have actually taken classes at Taylor with you that are with us right now. But for those of us who don't, um, can you just give us a brief introduction? Now, you're not just a professor. You're also a family man and, uh, and have a history outside the classroom. Yeah. So. so it is good to, to be with you this morning. I've been teaching at Taylor Seminary as a professor of historical theology for 16 years now. I am been married for 20 years and have a daughter, 17-year-old daughter, and two chubby little dogs. <laughs> that covers all the essentials. That's all the essentials. What kind of dogs do you have? What chubby dogs? A Lassa Opso Cross and a Maltese Cross. They're not cool dogs. No. no but, <laughs> but they give good affection. Fantastic. Wonderful. I'm comfortable in my masculinity. I'll take them for walks. Good. Good. Because we have a... We have a Jitsu at home, yeah. and I'm not as comfortable with Shih Tzu you're not. as you are with your small dogs. <laughs> so, well. so you don't dress the Shih Tzu up when you go out for walks? I, the kids do sometimes. Yes. We have these selection of coats that Nadine has bought for them. Nice. So, yes. <laughs> I'm not sure I ever put them on them. And booties. Do you have booties? We don't have booties. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Well, I get some opportunities. Well, more relevant things to today. Mm. Um, you know, I remember one of, the, one of the primary classes that stands out for me that I, I took with you at Taylor was an apologetics class. Now, um, when we got into that class, it, I remember we spent a couple of opening classes going through the syllabus and talking about some of the common questions, objections that, that, that atheists, agnostics, that people of other faith kind of levy against the Christian faith. And I remember very clearly about, I think it was about three classes in, one of the ladies in the class put her hand up and she says, we need to stop. You need to start giving us some answers because my faith is being shaken. <laughs> <laughs> because there are some really good questions out there. Maybe some of you have engaged in theological discourse in the workplace or in school, and you find out, you know what, there are some tough stumpers out there that people ask us. So, so as we're going to be talking around some of this today, why don't we start with, with a really important question. First of all, what is apologetics? Like, like, what are we orienting ourselves to here today? Great question to begin with. So apologetics, as a, the word, comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means a defense. So to give an apologetic is to give a defense for your beliefs. Uh, and we often think about apologetics with respect to Christianity, but the fact is that you give apologetics for things you believe all the time. And I think there are really two basic criteria for why you would give an apologetic for some f belief. And the first is if you, if you think this is really important, right? You don't bother to defend things if they're not that important to you, but if this is really important, then you want to defend it. Uh, the second thing is if you value other people so that you want them to know the truth. So, for example, uh, 39... But the, how's the sound in this? Is it... Are we sound okay? Is it okay? Go get us. Okay. So, 39 years ago, um, I still remember Mount St. Helens exploded. Do you remember that? Some of you? I was actually out on the playground and in Kelowna where I grew up. And, started raining down ash from the sky on us on the playground. So I'll never forget that. In the week prior to the explosion in Mount St. Helens, there was these park wardens that were coming up to this guy's log cabin. He lived just in the shadow of the mountain. And they were trying to reason with him to, to leave before he got buried in 40 feet of mud and ash. To me, that's a perfect example of apologetics. There was a very important belief they had, the mountain's gonna explode. And I value you as a human being. I don't want you to be in the flow of mud and um, 
and melt water that's going to come down the mountain. Well, what is the most important belief you have? I would say it's the gospel. Right? The, the word gospel comes from euangelion, which means important and good news. So the gospel is important, and if we value other people, which we surely should as Christians, uh, then we should be committed to wanting to share our beliefs with them. Now, uh, I guess we can g give the verse that we had. Which, so this is often called like the, uh, the, the central verse for apologetics. So there are many others, but this is a great one. So uh, Peter says here, always be prepared to give an answer. Now, uh, for the reason that, for the hope that lies within. So that's what we have here. So when it says to give an answer, the Greek word there is apologia. Always be prepared to give a defense or an explanation. So Peter's commending to us this discipline, that we would be prepared to give reasons to other people who don't hold our beliefs as to why we hold them. And the other very important thing is to do it with gentleness and with respect. Because you can win an argument and still lose your audience if you don't do it in a Christ-like manner. And so that really stands, I think, at the heart of apologetics. It's an important belief, so we want to share it, we value other people, and we should do it with gentleness and respect. And I love that last part that you add on there. One of the phrases that uh, I've kind of adopted, that I drew it to you, I should probably footnote you whenever I say it, uh, is, is to show charity to people. Um, not to the point where we reach a position of everyone's truth is equally valid. That, that's not what showing charity is about, but, but gentleness with respect to say that we can continue this discourse, continue this dialogue, and if we can do so with gentleness and respect, then we'll have better hopes of actually continuing beyond just one tense moment, <laughs> and that'll have a more lasting impact exactly. upon uh, the future with people. Uh, maybe one more quick thing along with that is to uh, know your audience. So uh, one of my favorite places for apologetics in the New Testament is Paul in Acts 17. So if you read through Acts 17, he starts off, he goes to the synagogue, he reasons with them from the scriptures to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He does that in Thessalonica, and then he does it in Berea. And then he goes to Athens, and he doesn't reason from the scriptures because they don't accept the scriptures as authority in Athens, they're pagans. Instead, he reasons with them from the Greek philosophers in order to make his case. And I think the lesson there for us is we should always know our audience and be able to present arguments and reasons that will be accessible and relevant to the people we want to reach. Thank you for that. Uh, speaking of, um, I, I mentioned just a moment ago this idea that, um, that when we show charity to somebody, show respect to somebody, we're not necessarily saying all truth is valid and, and equal, which actually leads us to another question that was submitted, I've reworded it a little bit, but uh, on this subject of truth, we're just coming out of Easter, and for a lot of us who are familiar with the Easter story, the Easter narrative of the journey of Jesus, the different people that he stood before uh, in his process of trial, there's this moment where he stands before Pilate, and Pilate asks this pointy question, what is truth? And, and that is a great jumping off point for a question that was submitted about um, absolute truth. Is it possible? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Uh, that's a question that some of you may not have ever thought of being needed to have asked, but it is a very common question and problem that exists within today's society as well. So I wonder if you could comment on that. Sure. Another great question. So, uh, I want to start within the, the definition of truth. So truth uh, is, the idea of truth is the idea of a matching relationship between two things. So for example, if I say a sentence 
um, let's say the sentence is, it is sunny in Edmonton today. That sentence is true if it matches up to the reality. If it is in fact sunny today, then to say it is sunny today is true. So truth is a property of language often. And if something is not true, then, then it fails to match up. Truth can also apply to people and to things. So for example, if I said Pastor Mark is a true pastor, what am I saying? I'm saying that he matches up to the expectations of what a pastor should be. That is to be a true pastor. Jesus, in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does he mean there? Well, I want to suggest, in fact, if we read a little bit further, uh, it becomes clear. So right after he says that, Philip says to him, well, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, do you not know me by now? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I think what he's saying there is, if you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what God is like, what his character is, look to me. Jesus is the one who matches up to the Father perfectly. Nobody else does but Jesus. Um, this becomes explicit elsewhere, such as Colossians 1.15. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the one who perfectly matches up to God the Father. Uh, we are made in the image of God, according to Genesis chapter 1, but Jesus himself is the image in which we are made. So for us to be fully human, to be fully true as people, and to be like God is to be like Jesus. And that is a truth that is indeed absolute. For something to be absolute means we could all deny it and it would still be true. And that is the very example of what absolute truth is. To know what it is like to be God, we look to Jesus. And so he is the way, the truth, and the life. Fantastic. And uh, in, in that same line of thought, um, it kind of is another issue, a question that had come up in terms of, when we look at this verse, we see that there's these definite articles that he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Now, some people would even question, well, he's claiming to be God, but how can we even know there is a God? Is, is he claiming to something that actually exists, or is he claiming to something that doesn't exist, which is quite convenient to claim to something that doesn't exist? And so, uh, another question that we had received is, uh, what is the best defense for the existence of God? Like, there are some people who don't even necessarily believe that, um, that the concept of God is even valid, uh, that there is no God at all. Now, uh, along with this, I don't know if you're able to comment on this as well, but we can probably define a couple of terms here, the difference between an atheist and an agnostic. So I think there's a lot more agnostics, um, or atheists claiming to be atheists that are actually agnostics <laughs> that yeah. exist, and it comes out of definition of those terms. Yeah, so, well, the, the word atheist, uh, it takes something called the alpha privative, which is the uh, of prefix that negates things, uh, and then it puts it in front of theist. So if you say atheist, then traditionally that means you believe there is no God. Whereas agnostic takes the same alpha privative, the negation, and puts it in front of the word gnosis, which means knowledge. So it says agnostic means I don't know, or I have no conviction or belief as to whether God exists or not. So you are going to often encounter people in society today who are either atheistic, they believe there is no God, or they're agnostic, they just don't have an opinion either way. And I've encountered a number of people when I've uh, asked them what they mean by those terms. They actually, a lot of atheists 
uh, people adopt the term atheist, but when they actually understand the term, it's actually more agnostic, meaning, well, I believe there's something out there, but it, it's impersonal, it's unknowable, it's I can't interact or relate to it, which would fall more to the agnostic camp, correct, than to the... Yeah, you know, sometimes it, people use terms in different ways, so I don't want to get too complicated here, but sometimes people use the term atheist, but they actually mean agnostic. Sometimes they'll say, well, actually, I'm a weak atheist, which means I'm without belief in God rather than that I believe there is no God. But uh, we don't have to get too much into the weeds on that here. I would just say this. When people describe themselves as something, if they say I'm an atheist, then ask them what they mean by that. Rather than assume we know what they mean, often it's important to ask them what they mean. So if we were speaking to somebody who identified in such a fashion, and they then asked us a question, so well, well, explain to me, how can you actually defend this concept of being a theist, of being a person who believes in God? Uh, what, what, what do you think would be uh, a, a strong defense, or what do, you, what do you think is the strongest defense, in your opinion, for that? The strongest defense, well... It's not a fair term. <laughs> in, this, in a sense, I like to say that this, the term the strongest defense is kind of like asking, well, what's the best jacket to wear? And the first thing I want to ask if someone said, well, what's the best jacket to wear? As I said, where to what or for what context? If it's winter and you're going out, then the best jacket is probably a parka or in Edmonton, right, or a ski jacket. If it's a windy day, maybe a windbreaker. If it's raining, uh, you wear a raincoat. If you're going to, to a job interview, maybe a more dressy coat. And so it, the question, what is the best coat, is contextual. It has to be with respect to a context. And I think same thing when it comes to well, what's the best argument for God's existence? There probably is no, there's no single answer to that. It really depends on, on your audience and what might resonate with them. But I would like to say that this is a particularly influential argument historically, and I think it's a very valuable one. For, resonates with many people, and it's called the argument from design. And so I think that we can see implicitly in Psalm 19 appeal to the argument from design. I'll just read it. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. So what the psalmist is saying here is he begins by looking at what is often called the book of nature, or the book of God's works. And he wants to say that the book of God's works testifies to who God is. Later on in the psalm, he then turns to the Torah or to the law of God and says that that also testifies to who God is. But I just want to focus here on this first part. So the psalmist is saying that when we look at nature, we can understand something about the creator. And something I think is we can understand something of design and beauty and purpose in creation. So I suspect many of us here We've, we've, we've been in nature, for example, we've seen a sunset or we've stood in the mountains and we were just in awe of the beauty of creation and maybe we said to ourselves, there has to be a creator behind this. Anybody ever had that experience? Yeah, several of us, excellent. I was a little nervous, but I, I thought there would be many. So uh, for me, one time, for example, I was, so we heard about Australia this morning. Well, I was snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia back in 1992 and I, went underneath the water, and the first thing is I was just overtaken by the beauty that I saw around me. It, it, it looked like the coral and the tropical fish swimming around and everything. It looked like a, a group of um, kindergartners with buckets of paint had been just turned loose and said, just paint everything. 
And so it was all these incredible colors. The, the beauty was awesome. And the first thing that I s sensed as I was swimming there is just the thankfulness of creation. And then there has to be a creator that brought all this beauty into, into being. So that's an example. Now often, this approach, an argument from design, people also look at the complexity of the systems that we find in creation, the way that things work together for particular purposes. So there's a famous example. Uh, a fellow named William Paley talked about it two centuries ago. He says, imagine that you're walking out in the countryside and your foot hits a stone. Would, would you think that there had been someone who designed that, that rock and put it there? He says, well, no, there's no special form or purpose to the rock. But let's say that your foot hit a pocket watch and you reach down and you pick it up and you see all the gears of that watch working together for a particular purpose of telling the time. It's a very complex structure and it has a clear purpose. Would you think that that had a designer behind it? Yes, right, we would. You'd think, oh, there's a creator of this watch. So then Paley says, well, the human eye is, is far more complicated than that watch and also has a specific purpose to help creatures to see. If we would infer that there is a designer for the watch, then why not for the human eye? And you could say the same kind of argument that Paley makes, but at a much higher level now. So for example, think about DNA. DNA has been said is the language of life. It is written in a four-letter alphabet and it is wound into each one of our living cells and contains the information equivalent of an entire vast encyclopedia set. And written into the DNA of each of our cells are instructions that create us. What kind of process can bring about the intelligence of DNA that would create life? In the same way that you would conclude this watch had a designer, we would conclude that this human life had a designer. And so for reasons like that, many people are compelled and continue to be compelled that there is a God as they look at the beauty and the design and specificity of creation. Absolutely. So it's more than just going to nature and being kind of wowed or awed. There actually is, um, there actually is, is a, a logical defense behind it. It's not just an emotional, I feel good when I'm in nature. It's like, no, there, there's, there's design, there's intentionality, there's purpose behind it all, which, which kind of undergirds the, the sense of awe that we have. We can see the yeah. matching yeah. there probably of, of, of the spirit and logic together. Yes, I mean, I, I think that, 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 that the first response you described, that intuition, is a starting point. That when I went beneath the waves of the Great Barrier Reef and I was like in awe, that's the beginning of the argument, right? To have that sense of this is amazing, this cries out for explanation. But the thing then that the Christian can do is then to reason out from that starting point and develop an argument. Absolutely. So let's take this question one step further. Because we're talking here about the existence of God, but we haven't really defined God, per se, and in each different philosophy or religion of the world would define that term a bit differently. So let's, let's take a, a step further and talk about a defense for the existence of the Christian God, as opposed to just the concept of right. God. How, how would you uh, move the question forward in that way? Yeah, so the, what we've said thus far is we've, uh, this design argument that I just briefly talked about it gives us a reason to think that there is an intelligent mind behind the universe. Uh, now that idea is consistent with Christianity, but it's also consistent with other worldviews, right? So how would you go to that next step to say, well, how do we move from there is a God to say that Christianity is true? 
Uh, now, I think the, the big step that you wanna make here is we wanna look to the historical Jesus. And so that would bring us to our uh, next passage here. So uh, I'm just gonna, I'll, again, I'll read this one. I think this is worth reading and dwelling on. So this comes from the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So starting in verse three, Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Kephas, that is to Peter, and then to the 12, and that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as to one abnormally born. This is Paul's witness as to the core of the gospel message. So the idea that Jesus died for our sins and that he was bodily raised, he came back to life, we just celebrated at Easter, and then he appeared to all these different people after his, his death and resurrection as a resurrected being. And that is the Easter faith that we've been proclaiming for 2,000 years. Now, I've often encountered these skeptics and atheists and agnostics and so on, and they have this kind of perception of Christianity and belief about Jesus and his historical resurrection that it's just about faith, quote unquote faith, but not about evidence. Uh, and they often will give an illustration like this. You ever play the whisper game or the telephone game where you get in a big circle and you start at one end and you whisper in a person's ear and by the time it gets around to the other end, it's totally different. And so the, the, there's this idea that, well, that's what the early church was like, right? They just, everybody's whispering in everyone else's ear and by the time it gets written down, it's very far apart from the original of uh, what happened. And so the claim is that what the church believed about Jesus is just legend. We can't really know that it historically happened. This is um, a shot across the bow of that kind of view. This is a direct challenge to that kind of view. So to put what I just read into context, Paul is writing here in a letter to the church in Corinth. He's writing in the year 55, and when, I give you, when I'm gonna give you dates now, I'm not gonna give you just dates that conservative Christian New Testament scholars believe. I mean, these are generally accepted dates, and the New Testament scholarship is very diverse and includes many skeptics, people who don't even have religious faith, but they approach it as an intellectual discipline. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15 was written in about the year 55. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. If Jesus died and was raised in the year 33, we're already within 22 years of those events that this testimony is being shared with the Corinthian church. But now keep in mind that Paul, at the beginning of this passage, he says, what I received, I passed on to you. So this is already, they already know about this. He's reminding them of this. When did they receive this then? Well, Paul was in Corinth in about the year 51, about four years earlier. So we're now into 18 years, back to the events. Paul says, I gave this teaching to you then. Okay, but then when, when did Paul receive this teaching? Answering that question puts us into the 30s. We know that Paul was probably converted. I mean, even the most skeptical scholars agree that Paul was an early persecutor of the church as Saul, who some, for some reason converted to Christianity. And that likely happened. He had his Damascus Road experience around the year 34. And then Paul in Galatians 1 and 2 describes how 
Three years after he had his experience, he went up to Jerusalem and he met with James and with Peter, the leaders of the Jerusalem church, to confirm if what he was teaching was what they were teaching. Now that would put it that by the very latest, we are in the year 37, when Paul went up to Jerusalem, that he would have compared notes and confirmed this is what he was teaching. But probably earlier than that. And even then, that's simply something already circulating that Paul was confirming. So we are within two, perhaps three years at the latest of the events of Jesus happening and then this being circulated as an early statement of belief within the church. There's no room for legend here. So what we have to do is explain on historical grounds what explains the fact that the early church was teaching that Jesus was seen resurrected with an empty tomb by multiple sources. And I wanna just point out one of those sources that is mentioned there, and that's the brother of Jesus, which is James. James is um, one of the, so he's one of the brothers of Jesus. Now the brothers of Jesus are mentioned in passing in the Gospels, but the mentions are a little bit embarrassing, particularly in the Gospel of John, because it's mentioned that the brothers of Jesus were somewhat skeptical of his ministry. Historians will tell you uh, that if a fact is embarrassing, then that makes it even more likely that it's historically true, because you wouldn't include an embarrassing fact unless it were true. Right? So the fact that they were skeptical of Jesus during his life suggests that in fact that is indeed true. So that would tell us that James was a skeptic of Jesus during his life. But after his death, James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem and is referenced in this passage. And in fact, even the non-Christian Jewish scholar Josephus tells us that James was martyred in Jerusalem in the year 62 for his Christian faith. So here's my question. What changed the mind of James, the brother of Jesus? to believe that his brother who had just died on the cross, humiliated with the curse of God, cursed is he who dies on the tree, what changed his mind to think that in fact his brother is the Messiah, the Son of God? Well, this passage tells us James saw his brother resurrected. So for something like that, what I'm saying is we don't just have to approach the text from a position of Christian faith. Even if you approach it from a historical perspective as any historian would, you can see that Christians believed this within a couple years of the events themselves. And I think the best historical explanation for it is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Right. It seems to, um, they, they list, so James is a powerful uh, person within this verse, but he lists 500 plus other people yes. there. And it seems like when you look at the other writings that exist, the questions don't revolve around the truth of the statement that he was resurrected, that he was seen. They, they wrestle more around, what does that mean now for us? Like, like how do we go forward and those sorts of things? And to me, it'd be interesting to see if there was, if there was volumes written in to refute the claim as opposed to explain the implications that exist. Uh, so it's, it's, it's powerful, a powerful message to show that um, there is validity mm -hmm. to a belief in the resurrected Jesus. Yeah, it, it's hard to understate the fact that this was a complete revolution in the way that these early Christians thought. I mean, they thought about the resurrection as only something that happens at the very end of history. And again, they thought that anybody who dies, uh, that no, God's chosen Messiah is not gonna die crucified, he's gonna come in and kick the Romans out of the Jewish land and be a conquering military victor. Their, their worldview was completely revolutionized and you have to ask what was it that brought about that revolution? And I think the best explanation is the one that Christians have been professing for 2,000 years. Well, uh, I think we've got time for one, one more. Uh, and th this is a bit of a tough one. 
uh, but I think a really important one, because I think it's one that a lot of us, uh, maybe perhaps even this very day, if not uh, at some point in our stories, can relate to or perhaps have thought. We received this question, which I've reworded a little bit, um, and it's this. How would an all-loving, all-powerful God allow bad things to happen? It seems like some of those statements um, would contradict each other, what we experience versus what we claim with God. That's a tough one, and probably a common one that comes up with, with people. Yeah, it's the single most common objection you're going to hear is the problem of evil and suffering in the world. So if God is, if God is all powerful, right, God should be able to prevent evil. If he's all loving, God should want to prevent evil. And yet you just have to look in the world around us. It takes a moment to see how much evil and suffering happens in the world. Just one particular example, but a very big one stands out for me as an example. I remember being at Chinook Mall in Calgary, December 26, 2004, you know, shopping the Boxing Day sales. When the word started coming in that there had been an earthquake and a tsunami in the Indian Ocean. And it took us days, right, to begin to calculate the scale of devastation that had come from that single event. The last number I saw was, I think, approximately 227,000 people drowned in a day. I think about one quarter almost of the population of Edmonton drowning. And maybe drowning isn't the worst way to die, but it's pretty bad. Uh, and think about how many animals suffered in the midst of that as well. And then think about all the pain of loss of people left behind. Think about people critically injured who had to slowly recover from their injuries. One single event includes so much pain and suffering and it seems random. And you have to ask, well, why does God allow these kinds of things to happen? Well, there, there is no, obviously no simple answer, but I want to at least make four points, hopefully. So the first point, uh, maybe to, to begin with, with um, this is a question. If God, assuming God does have a reason, Assuming God is who we say he is, that he's perfectly good and loving and perfectly all knowledgeable, um, does he, could, could we expect to always know what his reasons are? And I want to suggest that we have to be cautious about assuming we're going to know always what God's reasons are. Let me give you a simple example. Anybody ever seen The Karate Kid, the original movie? Any Karate Kid fans here? A the, few not, of us? Not the remake. Not the remake. With remake was okay, but yeah, the yeah, original. The original. And not the new YouTube series either, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> That's another story. Okay, so th there's this scene, so in the, in the Karate Kid, Daniel is this teenage boy, he's getting picked on at school. So he befriends Mr. Miyagi, who's the master karate instructor. And he wants to learn karate to protect himself. And so Miyagi, uh, Daniel is expecting he's gonna just start training right away, and this is what Miyagi tells him to do. He tells him to go out, he gives him some wax, and has a bunch of cars that he owns, and he tells him to wax the cars. And he tells them how. You go like this, you put the wax on, and then you take the wax off. Wax on, wax off. And so Daniel spends the day waxing cars, and he doesn't see any reason why he has to be doing this all day long with these hand motions. And then Miyagi tells him, now I want you to go paint the fence. And this is how I want you to paint it. Put the paint brush in the paint, and then you go up and you go down. Up and you go down and you paint the fence. And so Daniel obligingly does that. It doesn't make any sense. Finally, he goes to Miyagi, and, and he, by this time, he thinks, you know, he's, he's taking advantage of me. 
He's getting his cars waxed and he's getting his fence painted and he's not helping me at all to train in karate. So he goes to confront him. And then suddenly Miyagi goes like, ah, like this. I think he's going to punch him. I did that pretty well, didn't I? Ah! That's good. Yeah. And, then, and then suddenly Daniel remake. blocks him. You could be in the remake. If, if there's another remake and they want a middle-aged <laughs> white guy, I'm there. <laughs> Daniel blocks him. And then he tries again, and Daniel blocks him again. And then Miyagi tries to do a low punch, and Daniel blocks him there. And then he does a high punch, and Daniel blocks him there. And suddenly Daniel realizes that the whole time that he thought this had nothing to do with karate, it actually had everything to do with karate. The point is, however, that Daniel at the beginning was not in the place to know what the master karate instructor was doing. And I want to suggest that the difference between Daniel and Mr. Miyagi is infinitesimal. It's tiny when you compare the difference between human beings and God. So the first thing I want to say is, as difficult as it is, to understand what's going on in something like this December 26 tsunami in, in, uh, in the Indian Ocean. I want to suggest that God can be doing things that we can't even begin to imagine. In fact, there's a, a biblical passage that I didn't tell you about in advance, so it's not up there, but it's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, and we probably all know that, where um, God says that my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That'd be the first thing I'd want to say. The fact that we can't understand why God is allowing something doesn't mean God doesn't have a good reason. Second thing I'd want to say is that I think one of the reasons God allows us to suffer uh, and to experience evil is because he wants to bring some greater good out of that, which I think Paul explicitly says in this passage, Romans 8.28, that, that, that God is bringing greater goods out of the evils that we suffer. Here the important thing to remember is this. God did not put us on this earth for 70 or 80 years so that we can be happy. He put us on this earth so we can become holy. And I would suggest that when we experience suffering and adversity in this life, part of the reason for that is for him to bring about holiness within us. Third reason I wanna say is, or third, third thing to keep in mind, is that uh, it's one thing to have an answer to the problem of evil intellectually, but it's another thing entirely if you're in the midst of suffering. C.S. Lewis understood this very well. He wrote what is probably the most influential book in the 20th century on the problem of evil and suffering. It's called The Problem of Pain. And it's a very cerebral, intellectual treatment of the problem of pain. Years after Lewis wrote that book, his wife Joy was diagnosed with cancer. And after she died, he didn't go back and reread The Problem of Pain and find himself comforted. In fact, he says this, I tell myself it's not so bad and I reason with myself that it's not so bad. And then one hot jab of memory comes back and all those arguments disappear like an ant in the mouth of a furnace. So you can have the best intellectual response to the problem of evil and still find it provides little comfort in the moments of suffering. And I would much rather have Christians, uh, just to put myself as an apologist in my place, I would much rather have Christians with pastoral sensitivity and love for those who suffer rather than just to have all the quote-unquote right answers. So let's always be willing to and ready to, to suffer and walk with people as they experience suffering. Final fourth point uh, that I think Christianity offers above all is hope. My father died of Alzheimer's disease less than a month ago, April 3rd. Uh, and of course we miss him. And I have a lot of questions about why he had to undertake this journey into dementia. 
But I also have hope, a hope that, that other, many other people do not have, the hope of resurrection, the hope of restored life, the hope of reunion again in a restored creation with one another and with our God. And so the one thing as well that Christianity can provide, I think, above all, in the midst of suffering and life's adversity, is hope. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing on that, that last point. This, this is a very real, common question. It's also an extremely difficult question, because if you ever have somebody ask you this, they're not typically looking for a logical reaction or response. They're asking a question that comes from a moment of emotion. And as we mentioned, the first question, what is apologetics? And as we define that, a defense of the faith, but to defend our faith with gentleness and with respect, I think that applies to a question such as this. Because we can give them the most well-worded, most well-rounded, most ironclad response to this. But if it's a question that comes from a broken heart or from somebody who's grieving, it misses the mark. Because in those moments, respect and gentleness is, is required. Well, Good things for us to remember. Thank you so much for, for being with us today. I appreciate your insight into, uh, into these questions, these, these challenges. There's so much more that can be said about each of them. We obviously have time constraints that, mm -hmm. that we have to stay within. So I thank you for trying to, uh, to cover big topics in, uh, in a quick manner. So, uh, but before we close our service here today, I just want to close with a word of prayer, and then, uh, and then we will dismiss you to, to head out to your afternoons. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, not only can we have an experience with you where we can understand the words love, but we can understand the words grace and forgiveness. But Lord, that you have put enough into this world that to live by faith alone um, is not necessary. We can live with answers. We can live with logic. We can live with understanding that you are not just real and true in a personal sense, but in a defendable way to the world around us. God, I pray that you will bring people to us into our workplaces, into our communities, into our schools, where they ask us questions, where there's things that we have to wrestle with. May we be okay with wrestling and understand the growth and the advancement in our own understanding, our own uh, foundation that we have upon you. And then from that, we can minister with grace and respect to those who hold different views, different understandings, that in the end, we would all come to experience a life that is better with Jesus by living out his grace, truth, and love in very practical and very real means. Lord, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to discuss about the bigger things of God and the Christian faith. I pray that uh, each of us would take with us at least one, one this, um, strong truth that we'll, we'll uh, be able to work through in our own minds and perhaps process more later that we too would uh, understand in an even deeper sense who you are and your greatness uh, in a deeper way than we walked in these doors. We thank you, Lord, and for the days ahead that are uh, ahead this week. I just pray for your grace. I pray for your, uh, your protection over our people. So we all come back together again to worship you and praise you for your goodness in our lives. 